We all know the commonplace that we shouldn't judge a book by its cover. After reading meta-writings toward a theory of non-fiction, I'm inclined to extend this wisdom to titles. Though accurate, meta-writings doesn't capture the storytelling power that editor Jill Talbot gathers in this collection of essays and interviews by 13 fiction and non-fiction writers. In it, you'll find a piece by Robin Hemley that opens, It's my first full day in Prague, and I desperately want to find someone to pickpocket me. Or this one by Sarah Blackman that begins, Once a person has been a girl, it's hard to write about the subject. You'll find a pithy investigation into dating and a poignant account of a son reckoning with an estranged aging father. You'll find writers in pursuit of Janis Joplin and going on blind dates. Writers wrestling with the soul-crushing ugliness of Las Vegas and exploring the exotic dangers of Adventure Island. You'll discover whether or not there's a dog at the end of the world. And yet, Talbot's title does do important work, because it alerts us to the artistic and even existential investigations that drive these pieces. Meta-writing is writing that reflects on its own nature as writing, that calls attention to itself as an artificial creation. Meta-writing makes the writer's often invisible hand visible. You might think of Tristram Shandy in his life and opinions, constantly belaboring the fact that he can't get on with the telling of his life. Or Hamlet, waxing about the nature of players and playing in the play that bears his name. Here, however, the genre is non-fiction, so the pieces in meta-writing strike at questions that involve us all. What's a fact? What's a lie? What's at stake if I don't know or can't tell the difference? Who is this person that, most days, I think of as me? And how do all those ways I present myself to others, whether I'm face-to-face or on Facebook, capture who I am? To say it in a more meta manner, just how do we go about making selves out of ourselves? Jill Talbot, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you on, and I'm very excited to talk about this book of yours, Meta Writings Toward a Theory of Nonfiction. Uh, but I was hoping before we, we dove into the book, uh, you'd be willing to tell us a little bit about your background, what brought you to bringing together these writers and creating this project? Sure. It started with the first anthology that I did that I actually co-edited with Charles Blackstone, a novelist. He and I went to graduate school together at University of Colorado at Boulder, and we stayed friends after that. And uh, he visited me in Utah. He actually, I brought him to uh, Southern Utah University, and he did a reading and uh, a craft talk with my students. And on the morning before he caught the plane, we were sitting on my front porch talking about our writing. And he accused me of writing fiction. And I accused him of writing memoir. When what we both write is autobiographical prose, but we approach it in different ways. So we wondered what other writers were embroiled in this kind of conflict, conversation, fascination. So we set out to do the anthology, which is which was published by University of Texas Press in 2008. It's called The Art of Friction, Where Nonfictions Come Together. And in that anthology, we asked both um, essayists and uh, short story writers to send us something that they felt defied genre or if a reader 
came across it in an anthology and it wasn't identified by genre that a conversation could begin about what makes this a story, what makes this an essay, what is the difference, and essentially uh, the way Charles and I felt about it, who cares? Good writing is good writing. Well, and you- then we asked the each writer to offer a commentary on where they stood in terms of genre boundaries, borders, um, if they wrote both, how they approached that. And then Charles and I each wrote an introduction, his about the way he approached fiction and mine about the way I approach um, essays. And one of the lines I'll never forget that I put in that introduction is, if I make something up, it's still true. And so that's where I started being invested and interested and investigating the genre overlap between fiction and nonfiction. And then once that was published and a few years later, and I was still interested in that discussion, but I felt that the art of friction had not settled it but had covered it, and I wanted to press it, and I wanted to go beyond. So we actually, Charles and I set out um, to do um, The Art of Friction 2, Electric Boogaloo. Um, Just kidding. (laughs) But um, we set out to do The Art of Friction 2, and at that time, Charles was writing his novel and immersed in his novel. And I gave him permission to just give himself over to that novel. And so I, I set out to do the art of friction too, but how to press it, how to take the aspects and the conversation of what I call friction, that first anthology and to go beyond that conversation. So I am particularly interested in writers who address writing and talk about writing. And I would actually like, if it's okay, I'd like to read an excerpt from my meta introduction to the anthology of meta writings. Um, This is actually the the second paragraph. So it comes pretty early to talk about um, why I'm so interested in this. That sounds great. Okay. Hemingway advised Fitzgerald, I think you should learn about writing from everybody who has ever written that has anything to teach you. During the arduous writing of In Cold Blood, Truman Capote wrote a letter insisting, one can only learn to write by writing and reading. And a year after the publication of On the Road, Jack Kerouac wrote in a letter to Joyce Johnson, the details are the life of any story. Departing Africa, Isak Dineson wrote, At the moment, I really cannot foresee what I will or can do, so I will not begin to write about it. These insights into writers is but one of my fascinations with meta-writing, the writings about the writing. It is true I enjoy thinking about texts. Thus, one of my most significant friendships for over 10 years that will survive us, the, excuse me, one of my most significant friendships for over 10 years now has been one with a fellow writer. And that's Charles. We often joke about the volumes of emails that will survive us, the ones, often tens, we exchange daily about our current endeavors, the drafts, the re-re-re-revised sentences, the forwarded rejections from editors, the authors we are currently reading. And in parentheses, I write, I just emailed him that sentence. 
Writers record the thoughts, misgivings, frustrations, especially those triumphs that seem to arrive just when we need them, but now in various ways, rather forums. Fast forward from centuries of handwritten implorations, diary notations, and all-cap telegraphs to the digital age of Facebook status updates, tweets, blogs, and the latest text from your friends. We're all in meta mode, writers or not. Everyone now has a blank screen, compose post, status block, 140 characters to record. As I first learned in graduate school, art reflects or influences society. So I began to notice that more and more writers were collapsing the distance between artist and artifice. And I wanted to see what writers would do if I asked them deliberately to write a piece of meta writing. So that's the excerpt from the introduction. So I'm trying to foreground some of my favorite writers and how they write about writing or wrote to each other about writing, but also this, what David Shields calls our cultural moment that we're in. And he also calls it the Twitterization of our times, that if everybody is on meta mode and constantly being self-conscious and self-reflective about what we're doing, then invariably it's going to show up in art and not just in writing. And I write about that, too, in the introduction about the meta moves that are made in television and in films. And Um, you come up with your own term, the self-illusion, as you call it. Yeah, the the self-illusion of our times. Yeah. Um, So so what's that? (laughs) Well, so Pam Houston writes in the prologue, um, which don't let me forget, I want to go back and talk about how excited I was when when I received her uh, contribution to meta writings, but she writes in the prologue, uh, her, her concept, her philosophy about when she writes anything, the reader is getting 82% Pam Houston. And that when she started writing nonfiction, she was once introduced as a reading and the, um, the person introducing her said, now we're finally going to get 100% Pam Houston. And when she stepped up to the podium, She's a great reader, by the way. When she stepped up to the podium, she said, nope, still coming in at 82%, which fascinates me that regardless of genre, she still considers that there's 18% that she's playing with, imagining, fictionalizing, whatever. So there's the, a moment in, the, uh, in my meta introduction when I ask her, what percentage of us are we on Facebook or Twitter? Because all of us in the anthology are in conversation to, again, develop the meta aspect of the anthology um, and of the culture. So I'm thinking about the self-illusion is that we are all creating a self. And, you know, one of the most disturbing yet fascinating aspects of my recent move to Chicago is meeting all of these writers that I have only known via their self, and I'm doing quote marks in the air right now, um, their self, their persona, right, on Twitter and Facebook. But then when I stand in front of them, what I am worried about is what percentage of me, the person standing before them, are they considering as viewing me through that prism of Facebook and Twitter, So I think we're all having, you know, this identity crisis, especially, I mean, because I'm thinking about what if you could just sit at your laptop and never have to face the people you're tweeting or, you know, liking or whatever, 
how how do we finagle that? So I think it, it it's going to have to be a part of the writing, and especially when writers are you know like right now being interviewed or um, having social media presences or websites. We're all trying to straddle this idea of who am I, and then how am I writing myself. So that's what I'm thinking about when I think about self-illusion. I think that that one of the places that we we see it is exactly what you're saying now. You know, I've known you as a Facebook friend. I've I've come across you on Twitter, something like that, and then you encounter the person in real life, and you start to have this ricochet in your head of, well, what do they know about me based on what they've said, and what do I know about them, and how is this playing out? And I never thought your voice would sound like that. And my goodness, did she think I was taller? Um, I think one of the the places that uh, no, it's all you know. It's all, this is a terrible exa- analogy, but it's almost like being at a party and getting really drunk and not remembering what you did or said, and then seeing that person a couple of weeks later, and then you can you know you kind of have an idea, you remember them there, but you're not really sure, and you think, oh, what I say, and oh, because persona and identity is compromised before you even meet someone in person, right? Exactly. It could also be, a, you know, the same thing. That person was blackout drunk and confessed something. And the next time I see them, do I just suddenly bring up, oh, hey, you know, that mother issue that you went on about. And, right. uh, but oh. exactly. So the same for writers. Do so, so here's what I suspect, that writers are creating a preemptive strike. Because if they have to be so public now, we have to be, I should say we, if we have to be so public now, are we not inserting these meta moves to say, hey, I'm just creating a character here. Or, hey, this is just fiction. Or let me back up. That part I just said back there, I was inventing that. Well, I think that that maybe if you could tell us a little bit about David Lazar's contribution, because he brings this to the forefront. He, you know, begins talking about his creation of a persona as a writer, and then his creation of a persona as somebody who's now going on to online dating sites. (laughs) <laughs> and where those two things merge when you're sitting across having a cocktail with somebody you've just met. Yeah, you know, that's a fascinating essay in which he's talking. Yeah, uh, so th- the essay is called On Dating, and, and he is. He's he's talking about creating this persona um, and, and going on this, you know, this online dating, which is in itself a very brave essay. But as David Lazar is, it's also very brilliant because he's making the connection absolutely between the persona that we create and then how we have to live up to that or not. And then one of the, I call them um, Lazarian parentheticals. Lazar loves the parenthetical. And as he has explained to me, it's, it's the, um, it's the the Jewish voice inside him that keeps questioning himself. So he has these parenthetical asides, but he, he's competing with himself. So the parenthetical works in that essay and he uses it consistently and he takes a risks and uses it. Um, I mean, exponentially really. And so he's, he's the, I see two personas on the page that are competing that he's on the page as the writer persona, but then there's this other voice, this other part of his persona that, that keeps pleading um, and asking and offering these, you know, hushed asides. But I have to tell you that his was one of the most engaging and lively interviews. And our, our, our rhythm was so great 
that I was, so I was teaching at Oklahoma State University at the time, and I was teaching um, a composition course, and I was up at the front of the room. My students were doing something in groups, probably a draft day, and um, David emails me back a answer and the, the the rhythm that we were in did not allow me to wait until I got back to my office to respond to him. So while I'm, you know, teaching a class, I'm having a conversation with David Lazar. And of course, for me at the time, um, I, you know, I had not met David Lazar and I had only known him through his writing. So it was also just this incredible, you know, writers and readers high for me to to be communicating with him. Um and I actually have an excerpt from that, um, from that Q and A. Um, but but let me go back and say, do you know that? Um, is it is it David Bowie? No, Billy Idol, Dancing with Myself. I think that's him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So when when uh, David sent me his submission and I read on dating, I sent him the YouTube video. Um, of dancing with myself. And I said, this is what your essay makes me think that as writers, that's what we're doing. We're, we're dancing with ourselves. Um, and so sometimes I, if, if we're doing that, the meta move, the direct address to the reader, um, the admission that we're not really quite sure if we remember or not just makes it a little bit easier. You know, it's like going to, my high school prom, our our theme song, this was when Dirty Dancing was really big, right? And, um, you know, that terrible theme song, I Had the Time of My Life. I'm afraid to say I do. Yeah, okay, yeah, I know. It, it's terrible. That was the theme of our, our prom, you know, time of my life. Eh, anyway, so, you know, they asked all the seniors to come out and to dance to the, the, the theme song. Well, it was incredibly awkward, right? Because there's that slow part of the beginning and then it, you know, kicks up and gets fast. And, you know, for 17 year olds, it's just very uncomfortable. Do we do we embrace now? Do we just kind of step step touch? You know, what do we do? So, you know, that's how I feel when I read David's essay is it's about the uncomfortable aspects of putting one's self on the page and then how do you just face it um, and, and, and struggle with it. But anyway, um, so the, um, the question I ask him, and this is what I tried to do with each writer is ask about another work that they had, they had done. So I asked David, in truth and nonfiction essays, an anthology you edit, edited, you contribute a complex piece, Occasional Desire, on the essay and the memoir, in which you explore the occasions of essay, autobiography, and memoir, highlighting the interrogatives lurking beneath and between the lines of essays. In that piece, you argue a justification, parenthetical, occasion, for autobiographical prose to be less, quote, because it was or because I am, and more because I am, because it was. Is there an occasion for meta writing? And if so, would because be a part of it? And here's his answer. And I'm going to try to do this in my David Lazar voice. <laughs> I think that would be great. <laughs> Both David Lazar voices, if there are parentheticals. <laughs> um, the occasion for meta writing is who cares? The occasion for meta writing is, do I really think this? Or am I going to going to go through the motions of what I've always thought. The occasion for meta writing is how can I test what I'm thinking and saying in a way that scares me? The occasion for meta writing is 
what would I think if I could actually change and not just pay homage to the idea of it? The occasion for meta-writing is death. The occasion for meta-writing is a deep distrust of the self. The occasion for meta-writing is a yearning for the perfectly flawed sentence, which is the comet's tale of an idea. It's a beautiful image. I know. And, and so what I'm wondering right now is how is it that, that meta-writing, writing about writing, right, the self-reflective act, how does it occasion this sense of risk in a way that straightforward writing does not? That's a great question. Um, okay, first of all, anytime. So one of the things that Kathy Day and I talked about in our interview is she, and, and let me say that her piece is the only fiction submission that I received. And I'll say fiction submission because it was one of the ones that had already been published and it had been published as a short story. I didn't care. I wanted it, but we talked, but she talked about her interview is so incredibly strong. And in fact, the external reviewers um, through Iowa press said, you've got to put hers up front because she really clarifies meta writing in fiction versus meta writing in nonfiction and just meta writing. But one of the things she talks about is Raymond Carver's, um, insistence about no gimmicks. So one of the risks, and this is something that uh, both Ryan Van Meter and Andrew Monson also bring up, that meta writing can seem like a trick, can seem like um, a deceptive moment, or uh, forgive me what Sarah Palin would call a, a gotcha moment in the essay. But the, the risk is, and this is what I've actually been working with my MFA students at Columbia College with, because all of them in drafts and in workshop submissions this semester went meta. And when you put that layer on an essay you better bring it home. You better knock it out of the park. So one of the things I think is if you're going to call attention to the writing, imagine the risk in that. If you're going to call attention to what you are reading is artifice, what you are reading is something that I have created, what you are reading, you know, I am admitting to you that it is, it has been manipulated or it has been, I have done something in order to make it work. You're calling attention to the writing. You're calling attention to the language, to the word choice, to the syntax. So that's a risk. But also, oh, no, go ahead, Eric. Oh, well, I was just going to say you risk at that moment losing your reader, right? When you pull back the curtain and you reveal that you are not the great Oz, but the little man with the gizmos. Yeah, um, exactly. There's this sense in which your your reader may feel betrayed. Your reader may feel that the ground has been pulled out from under them. They may have generously given over their willing suspension of disbelief. And now you've asked them to pick it back up and you suddenly have an obligation in front of you or perhaps a pissed off reader. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's not like I, I say to um, beginning essay uh, workshops and or, you know, if I if I teach personal essay as literature, it's not a genre for everyone. The personal essay, it's so risky. It asks so much of oneself. 
And I think meta writing is the same thing. I understand that there are readers who will look at the title. And this is something that uh, Iowa and I talked about quite a bit. Joe Parsons, who's now at North Carolina Press, but he was uh, the editor I worked with. Wonderful editor. I would recommend him to anyone. Um, But, you know, we talked about the fact that just by the title alone, we were going to lose readers. Because either one, what is meta writing, or two, oh, meta, it, you know, I'm done. It, but what it, you're talking about, I, I wanted, I wanted to um, reference one of my favorite essays, and I, and I, I'm going to give it away, so I won't say which one it is. But in Bernard Cooper's Maps to Anywhere, he has an essay in which he takes us all to this beautiful place. And it's also a flash essay. So once we get to about three quarters in, he admits, hey, I'm just sitting here this morning and I wanted to go somewhere and I wanted to see this and hear this and feel this. But here's where I am. So I've created it. But what's brilliant is he pulls it off because he said, you know, we feel as if we've gone there, too. So like you're saying, the pissed off reader or the reader who feels, you know, duped or tricked or whatever. I think what he does there is he raises the reader's awareness of what art can do. So the meta move goes beyond a switcheroo at the end or that, um, you know, Wizard of Oz curtain pulling, but to actually do some work that, so when I was mentioning my MFA students who all went meta, and I wondered if they went meta because I'm the editor of meta writings, but, um, or, what I've now called with them the MFA meta move in which they're so involved in the writing life right now, being in an MFA program, writing only, you know, talking about writing, teaching writing, that it becomes part of the writing. But you can't do that. I mean, you know, you know that you just because you are something doesn't mean you need to be that for the essay. So that's where not that you asked, but but one of the risks is when it can really fall flat is when the recognition that the writer is not aware what the meta move is doing in the piece. So it needs to somehow be organic to whatever the the content of the piece is, to the pursuit or the essay of the piece. Yeah, it's you know, um, in in talking with Bernard Cooper in the anthology in the interview, you know. So much of his memoir, The Bill from My Father, there are, you know, he has the one chapter called One Art, an allusion to the Elizabeth Bishop poem, or Winner Take Nothing, an allusion to Hemingway. Well, he's a writer in, you know, part of his persona in that is not just his father's son, but the writer. So one of the questions I had for him is, you know, why do you have to be a writer? for this piece or are you always a writer? And I think that's something that all writers need to think about um, from beginning writers to established writers is when are we writers in our pieces and when are we, um, you know, um, husbands and mothers and dog owners or whatever. Do, do you need to be a writer for the piece? Or I think, are you really raising the, the essay to the meta essay. I mean, again, Lazar says that all essays are meta essays, but um, 
I'm going to go to what some, what, how Brenda Miller answers the question um, that I asked her. I asked her, how do you distinguish the meta essay from the essay or do you? And here's what she says. Um, she's so gifted, by the way. I think the meta essay makes more moves to directly bring the reader into that process using small but powerful phrases such as, I would like to believe or perhaps or even that minuscule workhorse maybe, invites the reader to mull with the writer, to imagine, to dwell in uncertainty rather than imbibe certain facts, histories, or information. And this is my side. See here, she's saying, you're inviting the friend to come sit down across the table from you and, and think about things. She continues, I think it's a subtle distinction. In a traditional essay, the essayist seems to take a more distant stance. Maybe you might call it disembodied, while a meta-essay has a more naked physical quality to it. Well, I think another way to, to spin pulling back the curtain, right, is you, and you point this out in your introduction, is that you create a sense of intimacy. Now you're seeing the real thing. Now I'm dropping the artifice, or now at least I'm revealing it to you. And so there's a proximity that gets established. Yeah, there's a, there's a proximity. There's, um, there's an invitation to sit behind the laptop or, or sit with the legal pad with me and think about these things. But it's so, you know, one of the consequences, and I'm going to use that term, one of the consequences of editing meta writings is when I started that process, and it was a two-year process to, to do the anthology, um, I didn't, I was not a meta writer at all. I had never you know, I didn't consider myself a meta writer. And once I got into the process, maybe about a year in, I went back and looked at um, my first memoir. I'm going to hopefully call it my first, my first memoir loaded and realized how meta I actually was, but I hadn't been conscientious of it. And then I had to reread those essays and, and see whether I'd pulled off the meta writing or not. Um, but since meta writings, I have to work not to be meta in my writing. And I'm, I'm working on an essay right now. I'm really struggling with an essay right now. And I keep writing these paragraphs, these ruminations and deleting them because I don't need the reader to know that I'm struggling with whether the essay is fiction or imagined essay. I don't want the reader to know I'm struggling because that's not the struggle that I'm writing about. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. I think maybe one way to recast an earlier part of our conversation about the risk involved in meta writing is that whether we're writers or not, we're all selves. And when you call into when you when you make the meta move, right? When you begin to reflect, um, you call into question the patterns, the conventions, the devices that let you be a self. And that's a big moment where you could risk losing those patterns, conventions, and devices. And I think by analogy, essaying has the same sets of patterns, conventions, and devices, whether it's the use of the first person or the second person, uh, whether it's you know how you introduce yourself as a persona or not. And when you go meta and call those into question, you risk losing the conventions of the essay that allow you to do other things, such as tell a story um, or tell the kind of narrative that presupposes that there's a self already in play. Cause that's the way we experience ourselves most of the time. Um, and so t 
to always go meta would be to constantly question the grounds on which you'd want to accomplish other kinds of things that essays also do very well. Yeah, I'm thinking about, um, uh, no, you're absolutely right about that. There's, there's a persona in place or you want to take your reader um, through, let's say, you know, Ryan Van Meter, I think is one of our strongest current straight, what I call straightforward narrative nonfiction writers. I mean, the man can tell a story. So it's no wonder to me that he calls into question meta writing, you know, because he says, no, wait a minute. You don't want, you don't want to do that because you don't want to, you know, call attention to what you're doing or you don't want to lose your reader. Um, but I'm thinking about, you know, moments at, I'm thinking about those moments of, of a break in, I'm going to go back to the party analogy when everybody's thinking something right about the person who's currently talking and that person just breaks character or his story and says what everybody's thinking. And then there's this great moment of release and energy and often laughter. Yes, exactly. Um, so, so there, there can be that, but if you really want, you know, and, and that's what I've been, I've been working with, um, you know, these students on is we're going along and you've taken us into the you know, John Gardner dream, right? Where suspension of disbelief, we're there, we're with you, we're in this space and whoop, you just tossed us out. And now I'm aware that you're, that it's artifice and that you're writing, because it, it doesn't need it doesn't need to be there. I mean, I have to tell you, I absolutely relish the opportunity to work with a draft of meta writing when it's not working. As much as I revel in reading a piece of meta writing when I think, wow, that's brilliant. So I just really think I'm, I'm fascinated with it. So what is it that you see in, in broken meta writing drafts mm-hmm. that creates intellectual excitement in a way that, say, a draft that would come in uh, about something completely different, a travel log or something like that, uh, doesn't provide that same kind of excitement. <laughs> you picked the perfect ancillary option because a travel log would not excite me. Um, you know, it's it's true about teaching writing that you get the drafts that you get and that excite you, and then you get the drafts that you think, now I have to do my job. Um, so I'll, I'll say this, you know, um, it excites me in the way that it's something that I'm invested in and that it's something that I understand and it's something that I've studied. Um, and it's the same, you know, I, let's say if I have a student who writes about the fact that her father abandoned her and she is struggling with identity issues and feeling half of a self, um, because my own daughter lives that experience, that student, I would really be able to climb into that essay and help her see that better. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all have that. Like there, there, there are the essays we get and we think, I, I know, I know what you're trying to get at. And that's the nature of essaying. I know what you're trying to, to get at or interrogate here. And I already know the inherent questions in this essay. So I can help you ask those. Whereas meta writing, I, you know, sometimes we, we study something and we think, I don't, like I did my, um, my first master's thesis 
as a, a literature student or a film and literature student on the adaptation of Norman McLean's A River Runs Through It. I never want to read a paper on A River Runs Through It again. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I just, I immersed myself. I know it too well. I'm done. But somehow creative writing has many more opportunities and nuances and pathways to explore something that one thinks I mean, for example, a river runs through it is a static text. It exists. But meta writing is a stylistic choice, um, a type of writing, an approach to writing. So I've seen and I'm drawn to all the possibilities, but I'm also very aware of when it's not done. I mean, here's meta. So self-referential, self-conscious if the writer is not self-conscious of that self-consciousness, that's when it doesn't work. That is a dazzlingly entwined sentence right there. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, that something you're, you're also hitting on is, that you, you've brought up earlier is that there's something about the nature of this genre, this collection that you've put together that really asks the reader to bring their intelligence in a rigorous way to questions like, what does it mean to be a self? Um, what does it mean to speak as I or as you? Uh, what does it mean to, you know, present yourself in the world? And what are the different ways we do it? And, and what are the costs of that? And it's not just happening. I think, you know, we are we are talking as, as writers who also like to, to theorize a little bit about craft. But I want listeners to know that this comes up in the context of essays in which people want to get their pocket picked in Prague. Or people are reckoning with, you know, the slow death of their father um, or trying to find out where Janis Joplin really lived. And so the context in which these questions are coming up are, are, are quite engaging and powerful. Yeah, you know, um, well, thank you for saying that, um, because it really could, I mean, you know, meta writings toward a theory of nonfiction. Oh, I'll pass, you know. Um, but the the reason for that subtitle, and I fought for that subtitle, and uh, Joe Parsons fought for that subtitle, because it's quite a claim. But the claim, I felt, it's a capacious volume that addresses craft Right. But in engaging ways. So, yeah, you do have these, um, you know, these brilliant essays, uh, the ones you mention. And, and I'm thinking about um, I'll add the essay, The Girl is a Fiction, in which it, it, it's one of my favorites by Sarah Blackman. But, you know, um, what is that opening line? Um, I'm going to go look for it because it is. It's just so brilliant. Um, let me see if I can. Once it. a person had been a girl, it's hard to write about the subject. I mean, come on, right? It's so brilliant. And I love the way that there's the white space after that, that she pauses. Um, but she really looks at, I mean, again, going back to self, but, but how do you write something as, as large and as vast as that? Um, but when I when I first started, I thought I asked for fiction and nonfiction. And so I thought I would have, again, this kind of genre defying anthology. But then what really came in was now this is interesting. The essayists responded more than the fiction writers. And I don't know whether that's because 
metafiction has a longer history and um, identifiable authors or, you know, I don't know. But so that came out of it. And then I thought, well, let's do a range. Let's do a, you know, there's the subtle move of maybe a line or a phrase to, and then the anthology will progress in an arc in which it just expands exponentially and we get some really weird stuff at the end, you know, some kind of complex, overt, meta, 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 meta. That didn't happen. You know, when, when stuff started rolling in, I thought, I've got to to rethink. So just like an essay, when, you know, the writer has to get out of the way and let the essay take control, um, I let the anthology shape itself. And so there are these engaging essays, and they're very different, but they're entertaining and intriguing and um, full of both from humor um, to mystery, to pathos, but it's really in the interviews that we start talking about craft and we start talking to each other. So from the, the first interview with Ryan Van Meter, in which I ask him about what he calls his stylistic tick of beginning every essay in media race, um, to Kristen Iverson, which is the last contributor and she talks about persona. She mostly talks about persona um, and talks about creative nonfiction. Her submission is called How to Be Tough in Creative Nonfiction. But we talk about so many things that I felt the subtitle was earned. That if somebody wanted, it's not just about meta writing. It really is about the essay and varied elements of craft and how we craft the essay. And it enacts it because interviews are a kind of meta writing. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things that um, Lena Dunham and I talked about that the interview in her interview, I actually go meta and say, you know, the interview is actually meta because you're talking about we're two writers and we're talking about writing. So here we are doing an interview about an interview you did in which you were talking about an interview, (laughs) giving listeners some sense of the kind of self-reflexive folds that go on in these pieces. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet they are also quite a joy to read. And I I think I put in that and yet because I I want uh, listeners to know that you can sit down and find these pieces not only intellectually rewarding in terms of thinking about nonfiction and fiction um, and the questions that underlie those genres that I think go right to the heart of, you know, what does it mean to tell a story? What does it mean to engage a reader? Um, But that they're also just wonderful stories in such a variety, whether you're looking at a screenplay called Mm -hmm. creative nonfiction um, or you're looking at someone uh, sort of investigating in very stark ways, the power of taking on anonymity uh, and so you've, you've got a lot to, to range through. Um, but I am curious, since you, you introduced this book as an art coming from your previous anthology, where are you heading next in your work? Is there another anthology out there right now that you're putting together? Um, are you going back to being non-meta and just writing? <laughs> um, I had started an anthology project that has stalled. And I, th- I suspect in part because of my recent move. Um, but it's called Lost Paragraphs, 
And I asked, again, fiction and nonfiction writers. So I'm not letting go of that um, dichotomy or um, conversation. But I asked writers for the paragraphs that they had deleted, omitted, because of their own choice or an editor's insistence. And then I asked for their explication of why it had been removed. And these are all lost paragraphs from published works. So So, I have to ask the question, why would you want to put together a collection of work that people have thrown away or deemed not worthy of being read? (laughs) I can't imagine why this isn't selling. (laughs) Um, yeah. Um, and that, that was the other thing I, I, I got some truly tepid responses from, from editors, um, and agents about what, um, but what I wanted, my initial thought was I would put all of these paragraphs together and create a new narrative. It would be a two-part anthology. I'm already talking about this in the past tense, but anyway, um, so there would be the first part, which is all of these paragraphs, you know, spliced, collaged together to create a narrative. And then the second part would be, so if this excerpt appears on page one, part two begins on page one with the identification of the author, the source, and the, um, the reason. So it becomes almost a Shieldian for me, when I read um, Reality Hunger, one of the the fascinations for me was, can you identify the writer and the source? So it could be it could be that. Um, but then I'm thinking it might just be a straightforward. I might do an online. I've been thinking about doing an online compendium of these and make it an ongoing thing, which is more a, a conversation or a, a place to consider craft and process. Um, and and how we do have to let go of so much in our writing. But what I'm most invested in as a writer right now is a meta-memoir. So I I stepped from meta-writings into uh, what I call a fictional meta-memoir called The Way We Weren't. And it comes from a letter that I received from my daughter's father, um, when she was eight, a letter to the um, county court in uh, Boulder, Colorado, detailing the history of us. And his history, his story was a fiction. It was completely at odds with reality and with my memory. But then it also caused me to completely question every detail I've ever told or remembered about our history together so that I have written this memoir um, about this very thing. How do we tell our personal histories when somebody else could tell a competing version of it? Or how is my memory become my history when I'm not really sure how firm that foundation is? And I make a lot of meta moves in the essays in it, um, making the reader aware or talking to the reader, um, but in very subtle ways, because what I'm really trying to 
I think what I'm trying to do more than anything is not just talk about, which any essayist should do, not just talk about my personal history, but really offer a rumination and a commentary on how we all are fictions in some way, which goes back to the idea of, of the self and the persona and the created sense of self. It sounds fascinating. And I think one of the things that immediately rushes to the front of my mind as you describe it is, is that we tend to think of ourselves as, is this given? It's that thing that stares at me in the mirror when I get up in the morning. It's, you know, what I carry with me through the day, but how delicate and fragile they are. And when you get, you know, a legalistic counter narrative that calls into question, um, that's powerful. And it allows you to sort of see how much work we have to do to keep that stable thing we see in the mirror that we call I together from day to day. Yeah. And, and when you, when you hold a piece of paper, you hold a document and, and who you are. So, you know, I'll say I, who I am, so much of who I am is words. And when I read words on a piece of paper, you know, about myself, and I realized that I have become a character in somebody else's story. It reminds me of the last line of um, one of the meta writings contributors, Brian Olyu, um, from So You Know It's Me. The last line is, um, I think it's, and you, you are the one missing and I am the one missed which I think is brilliant about, you know, we go through our lives missing people, but then, I mean, I'll confess, I do this. Sometimes I do look at the mirror and, and the self and I think, I wonder who misses me and who they miss. And I, and I, to me, that's at the heart of the way we weren't as well, which is the title of my memoir. It's a great title. Thank you. <laughs> well, I hope I need to hire you as my PR rep. Speak much better about meta writings than I do. Um, and then- I, I don't think that is the case, but I certainly hope that when the memoir comes out, you'll come back and speak with us about it. That sounds fun. I really enjoy that. Oh, Jill Talbot, thank you so much. Thank you, Eric. It was fun. You've been listening to an interview with Jill Talbot, editor of Meta Writings Toward a Theory of Nonfiction. I'm Eric LeMay, and this is the New Books Network.